Dialogic Disciple Podcast is a production of Northside Church, exploring discipleship and dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. Dialogic Disciple Podcast. My name is Dr. James Johnson, and today we have a very special roundtable on race and the church. Joining me for this discussion is Reverend Dr. Jeremy Battle, Senior Pastor of Western Avenue Baptist Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Reverend Dr. Taft Quincy Heatley, Senior Pastor of Shiloh Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia, and Reverend Dr. Austin Carty, Senior Pastor at Boulevard Baptist Church in Anderson, South Carolina. The four of us met at Emory University in the same doctoral program, where we developed a friendship And that friendship has continued on into our lives of ministry. I invited them to come and sit down with me to have a conversation about race in the church, especially given our current context and situation. We spoke for almost two hours, and so I've divided that conversation into two parts. This is the first part. Welcome, guys, and I appreciate you guys coming on uh, to the podcast yes. and, and having a conversation with me. Uh, we have um, we have entered into a situation and a time where this uh, issue of race and the church, I think, needs to be addressed. And we need to hear uh, from people who have lived a different experience than, than I have and the people at my church have. I want to start today by just asking you, gentlemen, how are you doing with all of this? How are you feeling? How's your congregations doing uh, as we go through this, this time? Not just with... Uh, not just with the racial and, and civil unrest that's happened um, and, and with these, these things that are happening around George Floyd, uh, but with the pandemic as well. How are you guys doing? You know, we, um, as, as we were talking earlier, you know, uh, with, with Shiloh, um, you know, being in, you know, a suburb of Washington, D.C., essentially, um, I think the congregation amidst the COVID um, is actually doing okay. Um, I've expressed to... Uh, Jay, that we've had five members who've actually contracted the virus. Um, the fortunate thing is none of them have died because of the virus. Um, you know, they're all um, recuperating. Um, they've you know, self-quarantined. Two actually had to be admitted to the hospital. Um, so from, from that standpoint, we're grateful. Um, I'll be honest with you, from a ministry standpoint, I think that this COVID has caused us to thrive in a way that we haven't necessarily done so before. Um, and, and that is, we have more people embracing technology and a lot of that has to do with some of the structures and infrastructures we had in place, but they really embrace technology and we've been able to continue our church schedule and even expand some of the things that we're doing. So, uh, they're looking at this as an opportunity as well to continue to, um, grow together in unity and also spread the gospel, uh, from a personal standpoint, you know, I, and I can't say exactly, I know how they're doing, um, in regards to, um, the recent trends, you know, recent things that have transpired in our country. Um, but, you know, it's a predominantly African-American congregation, so there is no shock value that's there. You know, maybe um, a sense of anguish, anger, um, disappointment and despair, um, and probably fatigue, to be honest with you. And I would say mental and emotional fatigue. Um, and I'm going to address some of these issues tonight at Bible study and sort of create a space to hear from them and how they're doing and, um, and I'll be preaching on Sunday um, about this, this situation. I, I addressed it on Sunday, but um, my youth pastor sort of preached. We've been doing this series on anxiety and fear and, and the, the importance of mental health to really build up our counseling ministry as well. So um, probably a lot of mixed emotions, um, you know, but we're just being black in America. I would like to, I really would like to know how some of my other congregants who are not black, um, and they'll tune on tonight if we see how they're feeling as well. So. Jeremy, how about you, man? How are you doing? How's your congregation doing? Uh, we're doing uh, well. I think I um, echo Taft, uh, Dr. Taft, Pastor Taft, his sentiment. Um, Let's just all enjoy calling one other doctor back and forth through this podcast. <laughs> uh, there we go. Yes. There we go. There we go. I mean, we just got him, and it's like, man, we're so excited. <laughs> yeah. Every opportunity to call one other doctor. Go ahead, Sergeant. <laughs> well, well, uh, we no, we're here. Thank you, man. Like that's that's a great interruption. I appreciate it because we, we need laughter in this season. To be real, like it's a very uh, 
deep, dark, lamenting season. But one of the things that we've been trying to do in our congregation, we're going to be doing that tonight as well, is really just trying to dial things up uh, and back in, 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 in sort of a certain in, in a certain way because we really want to encourage our, our members because as Taft said, a lot of these folks are fatigued. You know, we've got senior executives, um, you know, who are uh, are speaking up and speaking out and we're getting giving a lot of leadership and guidance in terms of ways that you can, right, um, uh, peacefully protest and uh, engage, right? Um, but it's a lot of fatigue because this is a rehearsed, a bromedic, outdated, concern uh, that uh, has always faced uh, Black Americans uh, uh, specifically. And so this is not new. You know, I mean, I've heard several folks saying the cameras are new, social media is new, we're getting it faster, right? Um, uh, and so there has been a benefit then, even to the way that the country has been able to respond to this by technology, right? Uh, in the same way that I believe our ministries have. My, my ministry, I think I can say for sure, has certainly uh, gotten uh, uh, more uh, expanded in terms of our capacity to reach our co congregation. And we had a lot of seniors who had been asking for years for us to uh, uh, to get online and get going. And, and one night, you know, uh, and you all know my testimony, you know my ministry narrative, small working class African-American Southern transplant church that, that was started by migrants, right, who migrated up from the South to have a better life, uh, better opportunities, workforce, workforce opportunities in the early 1900s, started in 1916, right in the middle of Cambridge, right? Right nestled between Harvard and MIT, right? Um, and so we're right here on the main thoroughfare to get uh, out of uh, Cambridge uh, and to get in. And so one of the things I will say is, you, you might recall that Cambridge was right there in the epicenter. My wife actually happens to be a senior executive at Biogen, uh, and so she, um, thankfully, uh, was not a part, and I, you know, I want to be cautious there uh, in, in terms of uh, her being there and, and so on and so forth, but she was not there at the conference, um, uh, although uh, was uh, really supposed to be there, uh, and um, like 95% of her colleagues uh, contracted, uh, I mean, a good number of them uh, got the virus, um, and thankfully, she uh, tested uh, negative, but, um, you know, let me, let me continue to to say that, that that's located, they're based right here in Cambridge uh, and in Massachusetts. And as you've been seeing, there's been a lot of disproportionate per capita uh, rates of COVID in Massachusetts in particular. Uh, and so it's been a real heavy, hard journey. We've got two little ones, got a six-year-old, um, you know, oh my God, big personality, uh, headed to seven years old. My, my son turned three during the pandemic. Um, and so there's been a lot of stuff going on at home while my wife has have, been having to manage uh, uh, as she leads the U.S. Compliance Division for, for Biogen, um, just kind of how they work through all of this stuff with, their, uh, with their, um, their, their leadership team. And this is, you know, this is across the country. and It's a global company as well. And so, and, and you might remember that was right here in Boston in Cambridge where all these folks had that super spreading event. And um, unfortunately, you know, I've been looking at a lot of churches around the country to be honest with you, uh, Jay, and I've just been like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know, like, I mean, it's like, did people get the memo? Like, people are dying. People are, are contracting this disease. People are still having worship. People, I've been seeing worship teams and, and stuff on stage. I'm just like, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. Because our governor and our state, like, I mean, they were really quick about it because we have so many people who were being impacted by it. In fact, in my church, we've had at least 10 Wow. Like several, several people uh, who've been impacted by it. And so I, I mean, we had a lot of, we had some very tough cases as well. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and really high active leadership, uh, people who are really, really on a uh, high active leadership within our team, uh, entire families, like the entire family. Um, uh, their children included, um, and, and very senior uh, leaders in, you know, in the organizations that they serve. So it's been really, really hard, and that started before Easter. And then we're small congregation. We're working class, you know, African-American congregation, so we don't have a lot of resources. We didn't have, like, this robust technology to just immediately go on YouTube and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And so it's been, it, 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 the first couple of weeks and the first couple of months have been a struggle um, to really just kind of manage the home life 
kids at home, my wife working for Bi Biogen and leading their corporation, and my church and seeing all these folks dealing with this stuff literally on the ground and also trying to figure out how to do that in terms of staffing and how to afford, right, uh, our staff, applying for PPP. You know, our Congress, you know, we did that early on in the process and thankfully we were able to receive those resources. Um, but, you know, it's just been a lot of work and it's this work I've never done before, work I've never had to, to think about before on top of, right, all of this stuff that's happening disproportionately as we see with, with cases of coronavirus and as well as, as we see on the opposite side with respect to the upheaval of racism and violence in the country with our brothers and sisters across the nation. Uh, and so uh, it's been a real tough period, um, but uh, I, am, I am actually encouraged as well in the season because it appears to me that with people be able to be at home and with people having their cell phones, we're starting to see significant upticks in engagement, um, which I believe is necessary even for the body of Christ to continue in the way, that, uh, the, the way it should. And so we've been seeing phenomenal uh, engagement from our seniors, our, you know, just everybody in our church, uh, you know, in terms of viewership and people engaging and even people with very humble means uh, are sharing their gifts, um, you know, and then other people who are, who are more uh, in a capacity in terms of privilege and, and wealth resources, stepping up to figure out what we can do, even in a small church community, to support uh, those who are part of our churches. So uh, it's been a lot of work, been a lot of tough stuff, and not to mention we were doing dissertation defenses and presentations in the process. Right, right. Um, but, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for Jay. I'm grateful for Austin. I'm grateful for Tab. I'm grateful to have a group of colleagues with whom I believe I can find sanctuary and comfort in giving truth to power and speaking these things the way they are. Um, and, and knowing that we've got confidence, we've got each other's back. Um, and, and so that's a good thing. Uh, and so um, glad to be with you all. I know that was a bit longer. But I wanted to fine. give you the that's whole great. deal. Like, I mean, we, you know, yeah. That's fantastic. What about you, uh, Dr. Austin? You uh, want to fill us in on how you're doing, man? How's your congregation doing? Yeah, absolutely. And I reiterate what Jeremy was just saying there at the end. It, it's an honor to be on for this conversation, just as it was an honor and a privilege and a pleasure for us to all walk through those three years of study together. What what joy that was and uh, what, what, what joy to form these friendships that I have no doubt will be friendships for life. And I, I, Jay, I thank you for putting together this opportunity for talk and, and Jeremy and Q, I appreciate you all uh, uh, having this conversation. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Dr. J. I, yeah, I'm, I, I've already forgot that we need to call him my doctor as much as we can. Um, but yeah, it is similarly to, to what Q and Jeremy just said, and, and I know it's the same for you, Jay. It's the same for every pastor around the country right now. This has been an extraordinarily stressful uh, 12 weeks or whatever it's been really since COVID-19 uh, became a reality that that we've had to, to, to reckon with. Um, like, like, uh, like Jeremy, and I know the same is, is, is true for y'all too, uh, though you didn't mention it, we all have young kids and that's yeah. another compounding factor for us trying to figure out a lot of really hard stuff while uh, we're, we're working from home with, with young children running around our feet. And I tend to migrate from, you're in one of my satellite offices right now as I'm talking to y'all. <laughs> and I just move from one to one when the kids kind of magnetically follow me from place <laughs> to place. You know? uh, yes, sir. So, and so, you know, there's, there's that piece that, that I'm glad you named, Jeremy, because it's a thing. Uh, but but the, the coronavirus uh, moment has been particularly, you know, stressful, not only for the, the fear folks have rightfully had about the virus itself, uh, but then from a pastoral leadership standpoint, knowing um, how to think about the steps towards reopening, trying to balance the fact that there are folks who think we never should have closed along with folks that, you know, think we should never reopen. Um, obviously I'm exaggerating both ways there, but you know, it's yeah. one of those things as, as pastors that, that, that we're all uh, in, in, in different ways wrestling with um, trying to understand microbiology in a way that none of us are trained for, uh, you know, and, and trying to meanwhile figure out how to, um, how to responsibly steward a, a, a church back into corporate worship together, um, knowing that a lot of folks are dying to get back together. And this has been uh, hijacked in a partisan political way that, um, that we all grieve that, that, uh, that something like a, a, 
a virus could be could be become so partisan, but it has. So that that's that's a thing. Um, and then of course uh, the the real topic that has brought us together today. Um, you know, when when you talk about the engagement on on digital media, we've we've been fortunate that we've had pretty consistent engagement since the pandemic started. Uh, but I mention it now so as to say we had our biggest um, Sunday in terms of uh, viewership wow. this past Sunday. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to deny that that's because of the social unrest happening and folks tuning in want to see what, what faith leaders are going to have to say about it. Yeah. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a heavy moment. And as I was saying to Q when, when I signed on, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a moment that is a pastor um uh feel a burden to to get right and to be responsible with and uh and 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 to 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 acknowledge why it is that we've been called to this vocation and uh when when you're when you're a, a white pastor like myself that uh is talking to a congregation that uh like most white congregations are very uncomfortable with conversations about race. Um, and as a white pastor who is happy to uh, confess that by my own formation, it is not easy and a comfortable thing for me to talk about race. One of the reasons I'm so grateful for y'all uh, dialoguing with Jay and me like this, uh, in such an open and vulnerable fashion. Uh, knowing what to say, knowing how to say it, knowing how to make sure that we acknowledge the problem and not sidestep it or sugarcoat it and then how to talk about it in a way uh, that brings us to a confession of complicity and also then uh, tries to lead us forward in a way of unification and hope in a way that doesn't us, doesn't stymie the conversation by making it a, an ideologically partisanly charged conversation, but something that instead is a gospel justice-based conversation about inequity in the world and about uh, racism both systemically and personally that is inherent and no longer hiding from, we're not acknowledging that, but then figuring out once we've acknowledged it, how can we move forward and how can we do more as the white church than just be proud that we've had the conversation together? What's the thing that we can do hand in hand uh, with our brothers and sisters from the black church uh, to move this conversation forward to where we don't have to wait for another uh, moment like this of unrest before we feel like uh, we're going to really get serious about having this conversation. White pastors have notoriously been terrible about that. I am as guilty as anybody that uh, the times that I am most apt to talk about race are in reaction to uh, a moment. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't talk about it and, and, mm. and just regular status quo moments because I do, uh, but not nearly enough. That, uh, that it's not something that's both scary for me as I stand in the pulpit and, um, and, uh, and not common enough for uh, my, my membership when, when suddenly the, the topic gets broached. I appreciate you guys coming on the podcast today. And one of the driving motivating factors for this uh, podcast is dialogue. It's Dialogic Disciple. How are we in dialogue with the world? How are we in dialogue with each other? And and I really think this is the time, uh, well, it's, it's maybe too late, and we're getting late to the game, but this, this is definitely a time uh, for a conversation about race and the church. You guys know that I did my doctorate work on white privilege mm-hmm. and grace, and uh, I went through that entire process of study and, and working on that issue uh, and did not get to the point uh, that I did just this past weekend when uh, I was telling Q yesterday that... Um, he, he suggested, Q suggested this book to me, though, The Black Church Beginnings. So I, I've absorbed this book in the last couple of days. And um, what, I, what, I, what I confessed to Q yesterday, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation is uh, I've always been, I've always considered myself to be an ally of the black church and, and, and somebody who can, considers uh, that to be part of, of my family in Christ. But I've always, I've also always been, uh, of the of the attitude, and I did not realize this until this weekend. But uh, I've always been on the attitude of like they've got that covered. I don't need to learn about that. I don't need to care that much about it. I, you know, I, I've got my own situation over here. They've got their situation. We're brothers and sisters, but uh, also, you know, I don't need to worry about it. And I, I realize 
now, uh, as I'm trying to find language to think through and reflect and meditate, as well as to educate and teach uh, the people at Northside Church, that that was incredibly naive, ignorant, and uh, even arrogant to do, to, to ignore uh, the history of, of the uh, African-American church uh, and the connections with uh, the larger race narrative that has happened across America since the very beginning, uh, even before this nation started. And um, I, I, uh, I, I want to confess that I think Austin in the same kind of line that you just said, um, that I am woefully, uh, woefully unprepared. I find myself woefully unprepared to have this conversation uh, with just myself. I, I'm not, I can't have this conversation. I don't have the experience and I don't have the education uh, n necessary to have this conversation in a real way with my people. So I appreciate you guys coming on here and sharing some of your uh, experiences and, and your, uh, your vision of what's happening and, and where we go from here. Um, I've, I've structured our conversation today with three questions that are kind of couched in narrative terms. Um, that's, that's kind of the language I'm comfortable speaking in. So that's mm -hmm. what I've done. Um, I want to encourage you guys to speak, obviously, uh, from your heart and anything that you feel like needs to be said, please, please, please say it. Um, but as we look at, uh, I, I want to kind of talk about the first question uh, for us today is, is trying to get a feel for where we are. Um, and I want to hear what you guys have to say. I want, I want to know what your read uh, on the story of, of in the current scene right now in race relations in the church and there is a larger, like I said before, there's a larger narrative here. Um, my focus really today is, is on how this is going to play out in the church and what the church yeah. should do. Um, but so what is your read right now on the story and, and the current scene right now, uh, and as well as with the church and the church's response? Do you mind if I get it started and jump started? Go ahead, man. Yeah, so, uh, so Jay, uh, first of all, again, this invitation tap all of us for, for for giving voice to how difficult of a conversation this is how we're, we're not experts uh even right. as men white men and black men who are leading in christian churches at doing this and so i think th th this speaks to the power of this moment in the sense that this moment you know has been created through pandemic and through our dear deceased brother floyd's uh death to allow us to be forced into this difficult, grainy, we don't know how to do it kind of thing, uh, but, but we're doing it, right? And, and so I think we should, uh, as we know theologically, recognize the chirals, right, of this, that, that, that even though we, you know, uh, in our traditions, and, and we vary uh, uh, in, in terms of our interpretation of uh, even death and so on and so forth, but at least in uh, my Baptist uh, particular strand and tradition, we, we believe that the cross is an example that death and the crucifixion is not the last say, that there is life beyond the cross. And I am grateful that even now, our brother Floyd, his, his blood, his sacrifice, his choking out, right, it, it is speaking out in such profound ways, and it's allowing us to have these conversations, but they're not new. These are not new conversations. In my thesis, graduating in my honors thesis from Harvard Divinity School, uh, working with Professors uh, Sanchez and uh, Jonathan Walton, um, it, it was a wonderful experience uh, because they, they were able to have these conversations with me. Uh, again, you're talking about 2013, and the title of my thesis was The Myth of Post-Racial and Post-Political Identity in American Church. One of the things that I, uh, I really lifted up was this idea is that there's been a whole bunch of us, white and black, let me just be very clear, white and black, who have surfaced this idea that we're in some post-racial, post-politicized identity in American church and society, and we all know that white folks primarily worship with white folks, black folks primarily, you know, worship with black folks. And especially in a Christian, you know, uh, 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 arena, and we don't we don't need a lot of witnesses. I mean, you folks are smart. I was a political science student 
at both Stanford and Morehouse. And the research is clear. I mean, from, from more recent scholars like Putnam, Bob Putnam and his work on American grace, and then people like Mark Knoll, right? And all of the sociologists, and even people like Corey Edwards, who theologically, right, from a sociological perspective, talks about this elusive dream that is the allure of these uh, mega and even diverse churches, which have diversity, at least boast diversity, but underneath, is, a, is really uh, uh, underpinning and perpetuating whiteness. And so one of the things that I believe is a, uh, a reality we all must face is we don't live in a post-racial and a post-political uh, uh, church and society. And oftentimes what, what, what is the, the, the tool that we saw in the 80s with Willie Horton, we saw this with the development of the new right, and we see political scientists like James Sunquist and, and James Glaser. These are persons who I researched all uh, my entire undergraduate life. So y'all forgive me for popping these names out, but I, we were taught together as we were studying that we need to cite, right? We don't just need to say a preacher right. said, a scholar said, yeah. right? We need to give credit where credit is due. We're not ashamed and of most name notably, Absolutely, and most, <laughs> and most notably, uh, a colleague, uh, 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 a female writer who did phenomenal work called The Race Card, Tali Mendelberg up at Princeton University. She talked about how this big shift, right, this big move, right, in the entire religious landscape in the South and the North, Democrat and Republican, took place during one of the highest, you know, the heights of televangelism in conservative, right, America, in conservative, and even during the 60s. I mean, we saw how, how the way white evangelicals and and some black evangelicals, by the way, got through the civil rights movement. There were many black churches that said nothing, that thought it was too risky, right, to, to, to be on the side of Dr. King because they didn't want to put their lives at risk. And the same thing was true with our white brothers and sisters, evangelical sisters as well, who were doing the same thing. And so in short, you know, that there has been a major uh, uh, consensus among scholars and even folks in the church, if we're honest, right, to, to really be able to say that this is a ongoing cycle that we've seen from the beginning of America, from the from the split, it was, you know what I mean? It, from the Civil War, we saw this with Baptists and Methodists and the, the development of AMEs, right? I mean, we saw this even with the droves of, of African-Americans coming to join the Baptist faith because they could, they, they, could, they could be in a denomination where they could do grassroots work. And so part of what I'm trying to suggest, and I, you know, again, I know I'm trying to take my time because I want to make sure that I'm giving credit and honor where honor is due in terms of the scholarship that has been done around this, we have seen a tremendous landscape around a race and politics and church in particular in this country. And most of the most of the times, the way we have gotten through it is through apoliticism. This is a term that that I really love that Tali Mendelberg coined a lot, and, and and almost to a certain extent, and it's 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 even of of of, of, of of both acquiescence, apolitism, and also this sense of that, well, we don't say anything. And so instead of naming the race card, right, and saying what it is, and that, 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 that we have disparate realities in the world, instead we get up in pulpits and we say, something, we say stuff like this, we don't see race, we don't see color, this is not a political church. And what those things have become are rhetorical tools and triggers to remind white audiences and black folks that 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 we're not going to discuss politics but here's the reality we know what happens behind the scenes right we know what happens in the elections we know what happens in the polls the majority of white evangelical christians right vote for republicans they are trump supporters right now and on the other hand we have african-american pastors who are preaching from the same Bible, teaching the same, in some ways, conservative evangelical fundamental beliefs even around biblical theology. But we're landing in different places in the polls and the most pivotal access and, and the most central access and pivot that determines how people vote and align and go to church in this country is the same that Dr. King noted. It, is, it, it seems to be, at least in the United States of America, raised. And so one of the things that I want to just say from the offset, my brothers, is we've got to get out of this, 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 this myth of reality that this issue does not exist. It does, right? It does, and it exists especially in the church. And so 
I think it's really tricky because I think even for me and my friendship, some of the relationships we have across the aisle with Republicans, Democrats, so on and so forth, there are a lot of pastors right now who are just shaking in their bones because they're saying, ooh, I'm going to get figured out you know, in, in whatever way, right, uh, on either side of the aisle. And I think it's time up, you know, as we had hashtag, hashtag times up, right, for all the folks who were coming out and confessing, you know, during our, our the, the things that we saw going on with women and, and harassment with women, the same thing is true for African-Americans who have been sitting in white churches, black churches across the country, non-prophetic churches, prophetic churches, times up for people not giving real witness to what is going on and what they believe. It's time out that people, you know, that people just sit back and be quiet and sit idly by and act as if we don't have disparities in the world, that we don't have polar apartheid in America in terms of wage, wage realities, in terms of the way we live in our neighborhoods and our communities, black people here, white people here. The same thing is true in the Northeast, in Cambridge. You know, on the other side of the T, on the other side of the red line. And, and, and so, so part of what I feel like I'm called to do is with, with my friends and, and with relationships across the country is to make sure that we burst the bubble of this myth that we're in some post-racial post and post-political reality. It does not exist. And, and that's a good way of checking out from the real issues at hand. And so... Uh, uh, those are my thoughts in, in terms of just kind of lifting it up and at least getting it started in, in, in sense of research and, and how there have been contours across, the, across America, across the United States, and especially with religious institutions in particular, uh, with this issue of race that, seems, that still seem to be a critical access, right, and pivot for, uh, for which uh, uh, we theologically line up in terms of what we've seen. What we worship. I mean, listen to it. The difference in gospel versus CCM music, the billboard charts, all that kind of stuff. And that's what I did in my research in terms of trying to lift up the real elephant in the room, which all of us try to walk by and act like we don't see from the South, the West, the East Coast, everywhere, that there are not despair realities in the world. In, in, in terms of American Christians, and so that's it. That's all I got to say for right now. And I know I already said a lot. I feel like uh, I feel like we just got a little taste. I feel like we just got a little taste of uh, what it's like to be a congregate at uh, at uh, Reverend Di Reverend Doctor Battles Church. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, for that. And uh, this may be the first podcast ever that needs to come with a bibliography, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna move forward. Uh, Q, talk to me a little bit about where you think we are uh, and what your what your read is on the situation. I'll see if I can be um, a bit more concise, um, you know, than, than Jeremy. This is his vein, though. You know, he's a political yeah. science major and Absolutely. studying sociology. You know, I'm, I'm a mathematician, um, physics, you know, former investment banker, you know, now term preacher. Um, I'll say it like this. We're in America. And the simplest thing I can say is we're in America. And um, no need to apologize, Jeremy. You know, it's your passion, man. It's good. Uh, yeah, but we're in America, and, and this is this is just as American as you know the soil um, that we we all live upon. Um, that's really what it is. I, I'll say, and I'm glad that Jeremy lifted up this point, um, and and well, Dr. Battle lifted up this point, and, and even with Dr. J, as we had our prior conversation to get to this point, is that let's. I want to give some language to when we say black church, because there really is no one monolithic black church, nor do I believe there's no one monolithic white church. We have churches that are predominantly white across a, a, a right away of denominations and the same thing with, with the black church. Um, you know, we have churches who um, are uh, comprised with predominantly African-Americans, um, but that spans a, across a wide range of denominations as well. Um, there is this book um, by Raphael Warnock that kind of feeds into some of my doctoral work called The Divided Mind of the Black Church. And a lot of that grew um, not out of a place of wanting to uh, be apolitical, as Jeremy um, coins it from uh, Middleburg. I think it grew out of a point of survival. And that point of survival always go, goes all the way back to the, the days of enslaved Africans, um, you know, as pointed out by Jamar Tisby in The Color of Compromise, which I highly recommend um, that, that you all read, um, and how the General Assembly of the Commonwealth of Virginia established laws that before the founding of uh, this country, 
as a colony, and I say the Commonwealth, but it really just, you know, the colony of Virginia, um, really established race, saying that enslaved Africans could not be a part of the civil society. There were arguments whether to, um, if they were going to be Christian, if they were baptized, could they be church members? Because to recognize them as church members is to recognize their equality. And so it was voted upon that they were not, they could not do that. So you could baptize them. Now you say, well, you can baptize with me, but you can't worship with me. We should not catch you praying. You already were, you could not read. And that was always the case because manumission was a possibility for the first couple of years, you know, on these shores. But once they recognized that um, the enslaved Africans, um, you know, was, was the free labor and, and there was an economy that they were providing now, um, it changed how people view their humanity. So now what you do is you assert images uh, of, of apes and savages. You create a narrative um, to, to fear monger amongst people because once you do that, you now uh, shape the minds of the oppressor, but you also shape the minds of the oppressed who feel that they have to operate uh, with this type of, in this type of mental capacity. You don't recognize their humanity. You don't recognize their worth. You say they don't have any value, and if they do have value, it's attached to the value of their oppressor, where they are now property. And that seed has never left America. So when you speak about the term that Jeremy used, apolitical, Eugene Genovese, in his book, Roll, Jordan, Roll, speaking about the slave preacher, he calls it accommodationist. And so you have this, 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 this look of the accommodationist saying, I accept. Um, sort of my place in society that has been given for me and crafted for me. And with that, I, I stay away from things that may uh, cause me to be um, in insurrections or something that will cause me to be what we call prophetic. But then you had, but I argue that even with that, you still had a vein of, of, uh, of Christianity in the black church which really is a creation of the white church, you know, had, you know, enslaved Africans been welcome, fully welcomed into the kingdom of God in America, you may not have had a black church or white church. But this is in itself is a measure of resistance to uh, the quote unquote, inability to worship with their white brothers and sisters. And so you have that creativity with spirit that they brought with them from, from Africa. And now that spirit that they have with them that Jay and I talked about that, that really is their pneumatology, which is why pneumatology is so prevalent in many of the African-American denominations because the, the, the nature of Africanism is spirit. And so there's a recognition with the Holy Spirit, you know, as, as an influencer, which comes out in preaching and worshiping and, and dancing and all those customs and cultures um, that, that the enslaved Africans were able to maintain and, and sometimes even enhance on these shores. So you have this divide now because I'm trying to survive. So it may be wise for me to be accommodation to be apolitical. I don't want to stir the pot because I fear for my life. Then you have the other vein. This is divided mind that says no. But if I don't, then my children and my children's children will be subjugated to this type of heinous treatment. And, it, and even if I give my life, I give it, you know, that I give it in a way where it now relates to the gospel because it has a redemptive value. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So with that being said, now, well, if the sin of America is, is, is slavery, then I'll give my life and I'll lay down my life for the sake of someone else picking their lives up and having a better life than I have. So you got this redemptive value, which we know is, you know, which is, which is our soteriality that's here, right? You have that on one hand that says, I'm willing to give my life. And then you have the other life that says, you know what, well, I have some compassion and I want to be comfortable, um, so I'll be a pietistic, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll lean over to the imperial cultural values of the white oppressors who are Christian, and I'll follow their theology um, to that standpoint simply because I want to live. And so now I got this divided mind that's in me with the black church, and Warnock does a lot about this uh, when he speaks about the movements. Um, but then, I, I, the, 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 but there's something else that we can't not ignore here, and I think this is where we really are. The gospel of Jesus Christ, and for that matter, Christianity, has never been owned by one race. It is as multiracial as the world itself. Um, just looking at, you know, we just left Pentecost. Just looking at Pentecost itself, what we see there is all the worlds represented. So, so who can claim ownership of the gospel? Well, I think that what we claim ownership is our 
cultural approach to the gospel and the cultural approach to the gospel uh, with those who have the resources and the power now give shape to the narrative of what the gospel should be. And because of that, if I, get, if I give shape to what the narrative should be, that means I control the narrative and everything else that's outside of my circle does really not belong. That's where we are in America. Yeah. And that's where we are from a social location, from a social standpoint, which we cannot ignore because Jesus Christ himself was socially located as a Palestinian Jew, and he functioned within Jewish customs and Jewish traditions even as he came against them because he didn't feel that they were being fulfilled. With that, we have that here in America. It's culture that shapes our expressions of God. It's culture that shapes our expressions of uh, spirituality. So with all of those cultures being there, naturally, we're going to be more prone to migrate to our own cultural expressions. Um, I think the challenge is of where we are in America is we've never given voice and value to the fact that our cultural expressions of Christ, expressions of Christ are equal. One is not inferior to the other. And because in America it's been told that one has been inferior to the other because the humanity of one has not been fully recognized, we find ourselves in these positions so that when a man dies, the question we ask is what did he do that would cause him to die? as opposed to asking what happened to him and how did he get into this position? Because there is this mentality that law and order, we heard it from Mike Pence, we heard it from Trump today, that this law and order is something that is a part of what I call the white imperialistic culture that now filters through how one even shapes and sees the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if I see God as one that's coming with law and order, well, if this black man um, which we know the Fraternal Order of Police was actually created from a political standpoint and then also to keep slaves in line, that, that the mentality of the, what the actual police is continues now. Well, this is law and order. Well, obviously they are out of the order and law must be enforced as opposed to seeing the humanity of them. I can expect that from people that are not Christian, but when you are Christian, you cannot say that that person does not have value. And you hear me say it all the time, Prosecution is not persecution. And black people have been persecuted in this country from the day they've been a part of this soil. And that is something that cannot be eradicated. It is in the fabric, in the soil of who we are in America. And that shapes the conscience of how we even see one another. Yeah. So even if I take police training and, and, and diversity training, but if that training has not been happening to me since I've come from the womb, if I haven't been training that since I come from the womb and I've been reared in a society and a system by which I have a bias, even if I don't call myself a racist, because I don't think it at all white people are racist, I don't think that. But what I do feel is that being white in America, some people subconsciously don't recognize that they're part of this system and how they see the other, namely how they see black men. Yeah. And there are fears that are stoked there that shapes now how they interact, especially if you don't have interaction with them. So where are we? We're in America. We're in America. Uh, one of the things that strikes me, or and I don't know this is true, but I bet if, if you ask the police officer uh, involved in this incident and you ask uh, George Floyd, I bet they both would claim to be Christian. George Floyd definitely is. That, that, so that I, is yeah, so, and I don't, you know, I don't know these men personally, but if you ask them what their faith was on, a, on some kind of form or whatever, I bet they would tell you that they're Christian. And the fact that yeah. this kind of thing can happen even just between Christians, and again, this is a larger problem outside the church as well, but uh, it, this is the most disturbing part for me is that this is Christian on Christian violence as well. Uh, and and um, Austin, I want to I want to get your thoughts on this as well it, from your position and from your perspective. Where do you where are we? Well, you know, to, to piggyback on a couple of ideas I just heard Jeremy and and Q mention and come at it from a slightly different angle. You know, I, there's so many different ways I could try to answer that completely and expertly, but. I think one of the things that is, is hugely important is what Jeremy noted, which is that the idea of being post-racial yeah. uh, is, is not only counterproductive and, and, and destructive, but for, for, for white folks in particular, it's a, it's a really convenient narrative. Um, you know, uh, and, and, I didn't realize that, you know, as 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 a as a kid when I when I heard language about living in a post-racial time or 
the 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 idea of well I don't see color. Um, that's a that's a convenient way to then not have to answer the questions that Jeremy raised, which is well why do I live in a neighborhood that's so predominantly white, and why do I worship at a church that is so predominantly white, and why are there's these unspoken realities? Uh, it, it it gives cover for them not having to have the conversation, and I think that the the real breakdown not the, the the real breakdown that issues out of all the historical pieces that you all have just mentioned is that when we get to where we are now, if you have these narratives that allow folks to never have to really come together and have conversation, and you're able to have the the comfortable lie that oh well the reason that we're not having the conversation is because we're past all then you never get any constructive dialogue like the dialogue we're having right now. Um, and it's, it's rooted in a fact of discomfort, you know, uh, at least I know I can speak about it from, you know, in large part from the, from the, the white community. It's a, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. And so how very convenient to have these narratives to give you cover for not even acknowledging your discomfort with having the conversation. And so right. I think that when, when, when Jeremy talks about the, the, the post-racial myth, I think that's one of the reasons it's so, so insidious and pernicious is we don't realize to what degree it's preventing us from acknowledging the reality around us and, and preventing us from engaging in conversation and, and having relationship. Um, and I remember Q when you had first mentioned uh, Raphael Warnock's book in uh, one of our um, seminars a year or two ago, right before it was coming out. Uh, I remember flagging that as a book I wanted to read and I didn't write it down and then I never have gone and purchased it. Um, and, and hearing you mention it, there's a book out there you haven't read Austin. <laughs> well, there's, there, there, there's several of them and this is, this is one of them. And I, I, I regret it not only because um, I'm fascinated based off of Hugh's description here and also because anything I've ever uh, heard Dr. Warnock say I've, I've, I've deeply appreciated. Um, and then also cause I know he's friends of Hugh and anybody that's a friend of Q is a friend of mine. Um, but so, no, I haven't read the book, but I remember you mentioned it. One of the reasons that, uh, I reference back to that now is that I think another one of the things that gets us to where we are now, uh, speaking from uh, the, the perspective of uh, the white church, is that there is a divide that is perfectly synonymous with the one Q's talking about from, from Dr. Warnock's book. Um, in our sense, and, and I think that uh, Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy teases this out for me in one of the kind of simplest, most effective, theologically sound ways that I've ever seen it done. There is a divide in the church between churches that consider themselves to be more progressive, moving toward a system, moving toward an acknowledgement of systemic and corporate sin, and thus a willingness to talk about um, the way that, 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 that systems uh, are are oppressive and complicit in um, all the various injustices in the world, most notably racism for this conversation. Uh, but then you have your more conservative churches that are very leery of any conversation about systemic sin, but are very comfortable with talking about, and their raison d'etre tends to be to talk about individual sin. And that's kind of the more pietistic element, you know, in the in the framework you just sketched there, Q, from Dr. Warnock's book. Um, so on that side of the theological spectrum in the white church, there's no problem at all talking about the need for individual repentance for personal sin. Uh, that's that's named every time that that the church comes together. And then on the other side, on the progressive side, the raison d'etre is to talk about the reality of systemic sin and systemic injustice. But there's a real leeriness when you start talking about personal sin and, um, and, and individual piety and those kinds of things. And I think one of the difficulties in, in uh, the white church is a biblically balanced approach to the, found, the, 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 the foundational notion of, of, of sin and naming that both of these things can be true at the same time. Right. That, 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 there are, that there are 
sinful systems that are being uh, perpetuated by and were created by and that sinful people live in. So it's, I think that one of the reasons that we are, are where we are is an unwillingness to be able to hold those two things in balance at the same time and say, God, forgive me a sinner who is every bit as complicit myself in the systems uh, that I also am willing to say, God, forgive these systems for existing. Um, so I, I think that's, that's, that's an important piece of the conversation too. I think that's, um, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, that's a great word. Um, I, uh, from my, from my little knowledge of, of the African-American church, I, I think that this is something that, that I've seen black churches do well uh, to hold these two things together that, that we can learn uh, how, you know, how to engage this personal and communal systemic and, and individual sin. Um, and Q, you were talking about the, the spirit uh, and you and I've had a couple conversations about that. One of the things that this uh, Mitchell book has, has uh, enlightened to me is, is how uh, this, a lot of this focus on the spirit was carried over from African uh, religious practice, right? And, and, and then the Holy Spirit becomes, becomes the new way of talking about spiritual matters. I think there's a there's a large uh, a large indebtedness to 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 all the churches across America for that focus in the African American church. I think in in a lot of ways that you guys kind of uh, preserved that idea uh, and have recommunicated it to us. I've seen my own my own um, tradition, which was in the Nazarene denomination. We broke off from the Methodist Church uh, almost uh, well over a hundred years ago now. And uh, we did that because of this focus on holiness and, and the work of the spirit. But a lot of that was sparked by uh, United Methodist, or not United Methodist, but Methodist ministers at the time being influenced by uh, African-American churches that they were around. So uh, it, I think that there's a back and forth there. Uh, when we talk about where we are, I think we are a lot more connected than we think we are. Uh, and we are a lot more over, there's a lot more overlap than we often uh, think about.